Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Lord, as we come this time now to, to this time in the service when we open your word, and we, we want to hear what you have revealed, we want to understand what you would have us to know, and as your church, we want to be conformed to your will for us. And so we simply pray that as we open your word now that we will understand it aright and that its prescriptions for us will be clear and that the way in which we should be conformed to it would be clear and that your spirit would help us to be shaped in that way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning and next Sunday... We will be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, looking at the first part of Paul's thanksgiving. In this chapter, Paul shares with the Thessalonians the thanksgiving he has expressed to God on their behalf. So he's thanked God for what God is doing in the lives of the Thessalonians, but he then shares with the Thessalonians that thanksgiving. And what makes this Thanksgiving special or helpful for us is not merely because it's the Thanksgiving of a mature and highly regarded man, the Apostle Paul, but because it's inspired. It's inspired by God, so it perfectly reflects the mind and will of God. Therefore, what we have in this Thanksgiving is a model a pattern. And certainly Paul's thanksgiving functions as a model for our own thanksgiving. That much would be obvious. But the relevance of this model extends beyond simply the kinds of things for which we give thanks. And this is so because Paul's thanksgiving is really just a window into his priorities. Paul's thanksgiving is a window into his priorities. Generally, what we thank God for mirrors what we value, mirrors what we prioritize. For our part, same is true, our priorities may seem to be hidden, out of view, under the surface, and technically speaking, our priorities in themselves are hidden, but they never stay hidden. They manifest themselves in everything that we say and do. One way our priorities, our values manifest themselves is in our prayer. When we thank God, the things for which we thank God generally mirror the things we value. When we petition God, the things for which we petition him generally mirror the things we value. And the same is true for every other area of our life. The things to which we give our time, the things to which we give our money, the things to which we give our energies generally reflect, manifest our priorities, our values. The same was true for Paul. The things for which Paul thanks God are the very same things he petitions God for elsewhere. And the very same things he petitions God for and to thanks God for 
are the very same things he gives his life for. They're the same things he gives his time to. They're the same things he gave his energy to. They're the same things that excite him. They're the same things that burden him and that concern him. The priorities at the core of who Paul is manifest themselves in every area of life. And because of this reality, that what we thank God for is a window into our priorities, that's true both for Paul and for us, Paul's thanksgiving doesn't merely need to be a model for our thanksgiving, as though that's the only connection we can make, but rather because Paul's thanksgiving is a window into his priorities, then those priorities which we see through the lens of his thanksgiving can be a model for our priorities, not merely our thanksgiving. And that's not to circumvent a concern for the content of our thanksgiving. No, by going to priorities, we're getting to the heart of the matter. We're getting to the underlying issue of what we value. And when our priorities have been transformed and have been brought into conformity with the model that's given to us, it will affect our thanksgiving and a hundred other things. This talk of patterns for priorities might sound a bit strange or foreign, but essentially we're just talking about what the New Testament elsewhere calls mind renewal. That process by which the Spirit of God uses the Word of God, not merely to clean up the outside, not merely to change some externals, but to transform the new covenant people of God, those who are in Christ by faith, to transform them from the core of who they are. And then, being transformed within, that transformation will inevitably, unavoidably ripple outward to the externals. But for this mind renewal to take place, we must be able to identify where our thinking needs to change. And not only where our thinking needs to change, not only to know what thinking is askew, but to know what it must be changed to. When we identify askew thinking, what do we replace it with? And that is where this inspired pattern for our priorities comes in. It's, it's a model for a renewed mind, or at least a slice of the renewed mind. And we can take our own thinking and lay it over that model, almost like a transparency, and we can see where there's incongruity, how it lines up. And not only where there's incongruity, but how we need to adjust our own thinking so that our minds are increasingly conformed to the way God would have us to think. And particularly this morning, how God would have us to think as he's conveyed that to us through this model for our priorities. So in this thanksgiving of Paul, we will see what we need to value more, what priorities should be there for us. I've summarized and structured the message of these verses as three lessons from Paul's thanksgiving to shape our priorities. And the outline will stay up there on the screen, so you don't need to write quickly. Three lessons from Paul's thanksgiving to shape our priorities. And this morning, we will focus only on the first two of those. 
dealing with verse 2 and verse 3, and the third one we will leave for next week. The first lesson to be learned from Paul's thanksgiving is actually not related to the content of his thanksgiving. Rather, it's the fact of Paul's thanksgiving, or rather we might say the prominent place of thanksgiving in Paul. So the first lesson is the priority of thanksgiving. Lesson number one, the priority of thanksgiving, which we find in verse 2. Let me just read that for us here. Verse 2. We give thanks to God always concerning all of you as we mention you in our prayers. We thank God because we are incessantly remembering your work of faith and your labor of love and your endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ before our God and Father. So when it comes to this priority of thanksgiving, as we're seeing it here in the model of Paul's thanksgiving, we can see several ways that thanksgiving occupies a prominent place for Paul. I'll give you three of them. Number one, the prominent place of thanksgiving in Paul's letters. The prominent place of thanksgiving in Paul's letters. Paul begins almost all of his letters with thanksgiving. That's just how Paul regularly begins his letters. I can only think of one Galatians where he doesn't start that way. And while that is not totally unique in Paul's day, others would sometimes begin their letters with a thanksgiving to the gods, and I'll show you an example a little bit later. What is noteworthy is the frequency with which Paul does it. If we survey letters around the time of Paul, the frequency with which they begin with the thanksgiving is far less common than Paul does. But furthermore, not only is it that it more frequently occurs in his letters, but the amount of space Paul gives to expressing thanksgiving to God is noteworthy. And most of all in his letters, in these two, the letters, the first and second letters to the Thessalonians, there are numerous ways you could quantify how much space Paul gives to thanksgiving. But by, by some ways of reckoning, Paul gives about half of these two letters to thanksgiving. Paul is clearly devoted to thanksgiving. It clearly has a prominent place for him. The second way we can see the prominent place of thanksgiving for Paul is in his life. So first, in his letters. Secondly, in his life. Notice in our text here, we can see in the text what he writes about the place of thanksgiving in his life. He says, we thank God always concerning all of you. And then at the end of verse 2 and beginning of verse 3, we are incessantly remembering. So this is a habitual pattern for Paul, clearly. Now, this is certainly hyperbole. Paul does not mean that he does nothing day or night but thank God for them. Nor is Paul referring to some mystical spirit of prayer in which Paul went about all that he did throughout the day, in which he lived his life. We, we can know that because uh, not only do we know ourselves about how language can be used in a hyperbolic way, 
You might consider the example of someone saying, that baby weighed a ton. No one stumbles over that because, number one, there's the regularity with which that unit of measure is used in a hyperbolic way, right? Ton is regularly used in that way in a way that doesn't literally mean 2,000 pounds. But then also, there is just the absurdity of it. So together, the frequency with which it's used hyperbolically, the absurdity of it, together lead us to realize not actually a 2,000-pound baby. Now also, we even see that with our word, incessantly, right? If we say, she talks incessantly, we don't necessarily mean there's, she never stops talking, as though she continues talking through the night as she sleeps and all of that. No, what we mean is simply that she talks very regularly. Now, the, the amount of time between the time she spends talking and the time she spends quiet could vary quite a bit, but nonetheless, the point comes across. But it's still hyperbolic. We don't need to take it to mean that she never literally stops doing it. Now, it's one thing to say, here's evidence that we do this in English, but that doesn't quite lead us to conclude that that's not what this word means, that this word wouldn't have been used only literally. But indeed, if we look at how this word was used more broadly in ancient Greek, we find the very same thing. So, for example, in one case, a man speaks of the way that he uh, spent two years coughing incessantly. We get the point. It doesn't mean he never ceased coughing, but it means he coughed very regularly. Or in another case, a Jewish writing, a Jewish testament, in which a, a father says that he needs to teach his children to read, his sons to read, because then they will be able to read the scriptures incessantly. The whole idea is if you can't read, you're dependent upon someone else at the synagogue to read to you. That's your only access. But when you can read yourself, whenever you want, day or night, you can read the scriptures. But the point is the same words used here. So we have the precedent of the word being used in this hyperbolic way. And clearly that makes more sense to just understand it in that natural way than to create some special category of this mystical spirit of prayer that we don't find tested testified to anywhere else in Scripture. But just because something's hyperbole doesn't mean it doesn't have any meaning. A baby that weighs a ton, even though it doesn't really weigh a ton, we still get the point, right? It's a big baby. And, and, and someone who talks incessantly, the fact they, they do sometimes cease talking doesn't render it all pointless. No, they talk a lot. And likewise, the fact that Paul is giving thanks to God always, the fact that he is incessantly remembering these things in prayer to God indicates that he is habitually and regularly, frequently doing this. And one of the things I noticed about this is that Paul doesn't just take these things he observes that are praiseworthy and bring them before the Lord one time, thanking the Lord for them and moving on. Paul says he continues to take these very same things back to the Lord again and again in thanksgiving. And that exposed me because if someone shares with me a, a prayer request, I will write it down and take it home and regularly bring it back before the Lord and pray for it. But on the contrary, if someone shares something noteworthy, something to thank the Lord for, I don't usually do that. 
I will generally thank the Lord for it there on the spot or as I'm walking away. I don't ever write it down. I don't take it home with me and continue bringing that thanks back before the Lord. That's what Paul did. Paul was serious about thanksgiving. It occupied a prominent place in his life. And then third, a third way we can see the prominent place of thanksgiving for Paul is in his theology. The prominent place of thanksgiving in Paul's theology. J.B. Lightfoot writes of, quote, how lofty a view Paul took of the duty of thanksgiving. How lofty a view Paul took of the duty of thanksgiving. How do we compare? Do we take a lofty view of the duty of thanksgiving? Paul took this lofty view of the duty of thanksgiving because Paul understood the tremendous, God-exalting, God-glorifying potential of gratitude. Let me illustrate this for you from one text. And we'll spend just a few minutes here, but it'll be worth turning there if you have your Bible in front of you. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. So we're seeing here the place of thanksgiving in Paul's theology, that it had a high, lofty place. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, we read, For all things, and contextually here Paul probably has in view things like Paul's own suffering for their sake, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. So notice the progression. Grace is spreading, presumably as it's evidenced in things like conversions and transformed lives. Grace is spreading, which leads to thanksgiving, which then leads to God being glorified. And what we need to notice here is that Paul doesn't link the glory of God directly to the conversions and the transformed lives. No, he links the glory of God to that which is intermediate, the thanksgiving, the conversions, and the transformed lives are the occasion for the thanksgiving. Now, just to clarify, that's not to say that Paul's teaching us God is not glorified by conversions or by transformed lives, but to show that Paul views, in some ways, thanksgiving being rendered to God as more ultimate than even the conversions and the transformed lives. In terms of how God is glorified, the means in which God is glorified, thanksgiving is near the top in importance for Paul. And we won't go here for the sake of time, but one other place we see this same prominent place of thanksgiving in Paul's theology is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, so you can check that out later if you're interested. So if that's Paul's theology, that's the way he looked at the world, and it had that prominent place leading him to, to give it this prominent place in his life, 
then what's, what's wrong with our own thinking when Thanksgiving doesn't occupy the same prominent place for us? There are probably many defective ways of thinking that undermine a prominent place for Thanksgiving in our lives, but I'm going to point out just two. One of the reasons we are lean on Thanksgiving is simply because we are quick to forget God's sovereign involvement in all of life. We are quick to forget God's sovereign involvement in all of life. Sometimes we slip into thinking that all that happens in the world is attributable merely to human activity. And if the wonderful happenings around us are the result only of human activity, why give thanks to God? On the contrary, Paul's theology, which had a prominent place for thanksgiving, strongly affirmed that all that is praiseworthy is ultimately attributable to God. Here's an example of how this works out. You notice that a fellow church member is clearly growing in godliness. Now, in the process of personal transformation in believers' lives, those believers have an important role to play. But no transformation happens unless God works in those people. But when we forget that, and when we act as though, we think as though it's simply up to that person, when we observe that growth in godliness, what is the natural response? Well, the natural response would be something like, that's great, good job. But when we remember that no, ultimately behind all of that is God working through them to transform them, then a more appropriate response is something like, I thank God for the change he is affecting in your life. And this is why Paul is consistently thanking God for what he observes, not just people. We don't find Paul necessarily thanking people. We find Paul telling people that he's thanking God for them. That's helpful. That's helpful because it reminds us that we aren't simply the ones operating and acting here, that God is the one who's using us. Another reason that Thanksgiving doesn't occupy a more prominent place in our lives, another one in addition to um, being quick to forget God's sovereign involvement in all of life, is that we, we habitually tend to focus on the negative the problems rather than the positives, the blessings, the ways God is working in people's lives. So much that deserves thanksgiving simply passes under the radar undetected. We take for granted God's grace in the people's lives with whom we're interacting. We take that for granted, but we take note of all of the ways they still fall short. We take for granted all that God has already done in their life, but we take note of the work that still remains as though until someone's been perfected, we can't thank God for any of the work he's done yet in the process. Which when looked at that way is clearly silly, but that's often how we engage. Surely there would be more thanksgiving to God in our lives if we focused more on looking for evidences of God's grace in our and others' lives, and just the presence of his blessings around us generally. And if we spent less time thinking about the blemishes in others, 
and the general problems around us. In all these ways, our defective thinking undermines the prominent place of thanksgiving, the prominent place that thanksgiving ought to have in our lives. But in all of that, the prominent place of thanksgiving in Paul's life for him continues to serve as a model for us of what we need to be moving toward. So the first lesson from Paul's thanksgiving that should shape our priorities is the priority of thanksgiving. And then secondly, moving into verse 3, we come to the second lesson, the priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness. The priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness. Here we see one set of things Paul values in people's lives. And I emphasize one set of things because this is simply a snapshot. This is not Paul's comprehensive, systematic explanation of all that's valuable, all that's worth praising. This is a snapshot, but nonetheless helpful. We see one set of things Paul values in people's lives, one set of priorities for people. And I've summarized these three things as grace-motivated fruitfulness. And the presence of these varieties of grace-motivated fruitfulness in the lives of believers is a priority for Paul. It's a priority. He values seeing this fruit in the lives of believers. And as a model for us, we too should value these things. It's interesting to compare what Paul gives thanks for with the kinds of things that his, his ancient peers gave thanks for. Here's an example, a letter from Egypt dated May 2nd, 257 B.C. Tobias to Apollonius, greetings. If you are in good health and all your affairs and everything else which pertains to you is as you would wish it, then much thanks be to the gods. So notice what he gives thanks for. Good health and if all your affairs and everything else which pertains to you is as you would wish it to be. There's a significant difference between what Tobias thanks God for and what Paul thanks God for, and so it should be. Following Christ radically changes our priorities. But what is it that we value most for people? What is it that you value most in people's lives? Whether it's your spouse or your children, your siblings, your friends, not least of all fellow church members. What you value most for them is probably evident in how you pray for them. And as we work through these three things for which Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians, ask yourself how Paul's priorities revealed in this model critique or compare to your priorities for yourself and for others. Compare Paul's priorities as a model to your priorities. So as we jump in here to these grace-motivated, this grace-motivated fruitfulness in its threefold variety, the first one we come to is the faith-motivated work. Faith-motivated work. There you see the beginning of verse 3. Constantly remembering, that is, we thank God always for all of you whenever we mention you in our prayers because we are constantly remembering your work motivated by faith. It's the first one he brings us to. You'll notice in these three, there's a common pattern. 
First is an activity or a fruit, work, labor, perseverance. And each of these things are outward. They're evident to others. But then second, following each one, is an inward grace that is the motivation or impetus for that outward activity. So starting with this work motivated by faith, the work here is pretty straightforward. These are just good works, activities or deeds to which Christ calls his followers. This is a generic word, and there's nothing in the context to necessarily restrict it to any particular kind of good work. This could include anything like evangelism, helping others to follow Christ more faithfully, helping with the physical needs of a fellow church member, The list could go on. A father who doesn't only feed and clothe his children, but does the hard work of deliberately raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. A husband who selflessly and sacrificially loves his wife in any number of ways, not least of all doing the deliberate work of shepherding her toward greater Christ-likeness. These would be works motivated by faith. And notice that it's not simply work. Paul's Paul's aware that people can simply work. People all around him, without faith in Christ, do various kinds of activities. Paul's concerned for fruit that is evidence of spirit-wrought transformation within. And so he links it, not just work, but work that's motivated by faith. There's this inner reality of trust in Christ, of allegiance to him, that motivates the believer to do good works. It's interesting to note here the way that Paul puts side by side here faith and works, contrary to some people who want to think that Paul is opposed to good works. Paul is emphatic that there is no place for good works as a basis for our acceptance before God. But Paul is equally emphatic that wherever there is genuine faith, good works will follow. As many have said before, we are saved by faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. That is to say, while it is faith alone that saves us, genuine faith will always produce good works. And that's what we see here. Rather than opposing faith and works, Paul says that faith produces good works. So the first variety of grace-motivated fruitfulness is faith-motivated work. Good works, motivated by faith, was a priority for Paul and his regard for people, and it should be so for us. A second variety of grace-motivated fruitfulness is love-motivated labor. Labor is a little bit more specific than the generic word work, that we just saw, it refers more specifically to to grueling work, hard work implying difficulties in trouble, into activity that is burdensome. Thus, the labor here indicates a more intense expenditure of energy accompanied by discomfort. A more intense expenditure of energy accompanied by discomfort. And for what kinds of things is this labor to be expended? Again, it's it's fairly broad. He doesn't indicate anything in particular. It could be anything that falls within the scope of what Christians are commanded to do. 
and any activity that is part of furthering the mission Christ has given to the church. And as with the work motivated by faith, this laborious toil is not starting with itself. It goes back to a grace the Lord has already worked in their lives, love. Now, again, it's not clear exactly who this love is for. Is this love for Christ? Is this love for others? Surely, Paul would affirm that both should be in believers' lives. Surely, Paul would affirm that both are capable of motivating this labor. But which one it is, it's not clear. The second variety of grace-motivated fruitfulness is love-motivated labor. Love motivated by labor is a priority for Paul, for people, and so it should be for us. And the third variety of grace-motivated fruitfulness is hope-motivated perseverance. Hope-motivated perseverance. In the New Testament, perseverance generally refers to glad persistence in pursuing the mission Christ has given us despite the difficulties we encounter along the way. That is, glad persistence in pursuing the mission Christ has given us despite the difficulties we encounter along the way. Chief among the difficulties which would be in view here for the Thessalonians through which they must persevere would be persecution. We know that from the very beginning the Thessalonians were persecuted. In fact, that's why, the, why Paul's time there, along with Silvanus and Timothy, was cut short. Um, anywhere from several weeks, we know they spent at least three Sabbaths there, but any time from that to up to a couple months, after that time, they had to leave because of persecution. So uh, this letter is being written shortly after Paul having left them, not long after they were saved, and being quite concerned for them, ends up sending Timothy back to hear, how are they doing? Are they continuing to persevere? And he hears back word that, yes, they are. That's why he's rejoicing and giving thanks to the Lord. Here are some examples from the Thessalonian epistles indicating the presence of such persecution. First Thessalonians 1.6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So Thessalonians, fellow countrymen, are persecuting them. And thirdly, 2 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul writes, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for we boast about this in you, your perseverance and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So clearly, this perseverance that Paul is seeing in their lives is perseverance in the face of persecutions. It could be other things as well, but it certainly would include in the face of those persecutions. And again, as with the last two, this perseverance is motivated by an inward grace. In this case, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this hope is specifically associated not just with the person, but also with the event of his second coming. Frequently, that's hope in Christ is oriented toward his coming. And that 
they were fixed upon, the second coming of Christ, is evident at the end of this very chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. For they themselves proclaim concerning us what sort of entrance we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and, verse 10, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So clearly they have this eager waiting for Christ's coming, which would align well with this hope in Christ here. But what specifically is it that happens in connection with Christ's coming, which gives believers hope in the midst of persecution? What helps them to endure through persecution? Well, here are some other things that Paul regularly associates with Christ's second coming and holds out for people, especially in the midst of persecution, to encourage them. One, and this one we see very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10, we see uh, judgment for all those who oppose and persecute believers. So something that will accompany Christ's second coming that will comfort believers in the midst of persecution is the expectation of judgment for all those who oppose and persecute believers. That might sound strange to us. Sometimes we, we think about passages about loving your enemy and allow that to become uh, kind of the text in which all others, by which all others are interpreted. Uh, but the New Testament regularly holds out this, this promise that God will not allow injustices to go undealt with, that all things will be made right. In fact, this is a significant part of the teaching of the book of Revelation, that believers in the midst of persecution are comforted and helped to persevere by knowing that their persecutors will receive punishment, that they will not be left for the injustice they're rendering without any kind of punishment. So one, judgment for all those who oppose and persecute believers. Secondly, um, another thing that would be connected with Christ's second coming as the object of hope to motivate perseverance, would be relief from suffering, vindication, and reward from, for the believer. Relief from suffering, vindication, and reward for the believer. We see this also in 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 10. And then finally, I'm sure Paul would draw our attention to the promise of glory. Now, you might think, well, that sounds categorically like it fits right there under reward. And that's true. But Paul very regularly takes this promise of glory for the believer and holds it out to motivate believers in the midst of suffering. I think if Paul were standing here, he would probably pull that out and set it separately from just rewards generally. In two places we see that, just two, but two places we see that in Paul's writings, this promise and expectation for glory for the believer as a means to motivate them in the midst of suffering would be Romans chapter 5 verse 2 and Colossians chapter 1 verse 27. This hope that motivates perseverance in the midst of persecution is important. Notice that this, this is hope, not self-pity in the midst of persecution. Sometimes we can continue going, enduring, gutting it out, 
while pitying ourselves. Sometimes you know, that's the, the attitude we find in our own hearts as we look around and contemplate the possibility of impending persecution on the horizon. What's our reaction? Self-pity. But that's not what was characterizing the believers here. What was characterizing them was a bold confidence because they're fixed upon Christ in his coming. When that's in view, we don't need to pity ourselves. We can't simultaneously be hoping in that and be pitying ourselves. This is not hard for us to understand this whole category of being motivated to persevere by the hope of what is to come. We're familiar with this category. Consider the coach who says, just finish this last lap and then you will be done. So there's relief being held out to motivate perseverance. Or the parent who says, just finish your chores and then you can have a cookie. Holding out reward as a motivation to persevere. So the third variety of grace-motivated fruitfulness is hope-motivated perseverance. And these three varieties of grace-motivated fruitfulness are some of the things Paul highly values in people. They're some of his priorities for people. It's a priority for Paul to see these things in believers' lives. And therefore, having seen them or heard about them in the believers' lives, he can't stop thanking God for them because they're important to him. So the second lesson from Paul's thanksgiving that should shape our priorities is the priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness. Just to summarize those fruits, Paul values highly and we ought to value highly and be pursuing that believers are doing good deeds because of faith in Christ. That's important. Number two, that believers are laboring tirelessly for the mission of Christ because of their love for Christ and their love for others. That's important. And number three, that believers are courageously persevering in the face of difficulty by serving Christ because their hope is fixed on Christ and his coming. That's a priority. So as you seek to nurture these priorities in your heart, how should you expect them to manifest themselves in your life? Well, the priority of thanksgiving is pretty obvious. It's going to manifest itself in giving a greater place to thanksgiving in your own life. As you more frequently and regularly express thankfulness to the Lord. It also may look like, first, being quicker to take note of the ways the Lord is working, being more attentive to that. And as you notice those things, being quick then to give the Lord thanks for them. A second way, flowing out of the second priority, the second lesson, the priority of grace-motivated fruitfulness, it will manifest itself in things like, start with the obvious one, what we thank God for. When our priorities are being shifted and changed and transformed, that's going to be evident in the kinds of things we thank the Lord for. As one of those, and one of those priorities should be a concern for the fruitfulness of believers manifesting itself and being quick to notice fruitfulness and then eager to thank God for that fruitfulness we're noticing in believers' lives. A second way that this priority 
of fruitfulness in believers' lives should manifest itself as what we petition God for. Our prayers for people will increasingly be aimed at their growth and fruitfulness, and not just their growth and fruitfulness, but their growth and fruitfulness because of inner transformation, growth in faith, growth in love, and growth in hope in Christ at his coming. And another way that this priority of fruitfulness will manifest itself in our life as that's increasingly worked within is in that, that category of a hundred other things. What we prioritize in our use of time, money, energy, etc. As your priorities are being transformed, many areas of your life will follow. You, you, your use of these things will be increasingly aimed at helping other believers grow in fruitfulness. So we've talked about how there's this connection between our priorities, what we give thanks for, and then all these other things, and we've simply looked at in Paul's life what he gives thanks for and how that reveals his priorities. But I just want, as we're talking about the ways this manifests itself in other areas, just to show you some examples of how these things, these priorities manifest themselves in Paul's life. And there are so many places we could go, but I'm just going to limit us to 1 Thessalonians. So one way we see these priorities manifesting themselves in Paul's life is what concerns and burdens Paul. What concerns and burdens Paul? Consider 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul writes, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul is burdened. Paul is concerned that these believers persevere. And therefore, it comes out in his thanksgiving, as we already saw, it comes out in the concerns he expresses. It also comes out, these priorities in Paul's life, in the kinds of things that encourage him. We just continue on there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul writes, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news, so see his, his deeming this news good news is evidence of his encouragement by it, has brought us the good news of, what has he been encouraged by? Your faith and your love. The very same things he's been thanking the Lord for. And he reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Paul's finding comfort, encouragement from knowing of how their faith is doing. And notice the juxtaposition there. He's finding comfort because of their faith in the midst of his own distress and affliction. Put those things on a scale, my distress and affliction, but simultaneously knowing that you're growing, oh, there's no doubt, I'm comforted. On that scale, my own distress and affliction is light because I prioritize believers' growth and faithfulness. And then he continues on, verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. For now we live, that's encouragement language, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul's encouragement is tied up with their perseverance. And then he continues, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel on account of you before our God. So Paul's joy is just tied up in the fruitfulness of these believers. 
So we've been looking at how we can see these same priorities in Paul's life and what encourages him. And finally, there are many other things we could go to, but I'll stop here. We, we can see these priorities in what he gives his time to. And wow, we could go almost anywhere in Paul's letters to see this because Paul gave his life to see people trust Christ and grow in Christ. But here's just one limiting ourselves to this letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Paul writes, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and we encouraged you, and we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul's saying, I, I did this time-intensive work of spending time with each one of you, and spending time to exhort you, and spending time to encourage you, and spending time to charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul gave his time to make sure that the believers were growing in these ways. And we could go on demonstrating that Paul's whole life was shaped by these priorities. What a model. Likewise, as these priorities are nurtured in our hearts, as we see the model, the priorities that we see coming through in Paul's thanksgiving, and we line it up next to ours, and we seek to increasingly bring our own priorities by God's grace into conformity with those priorities, making those priorities our priorities, as we seek to do that, not only will that be changing us inwardly, but that will be manifesting itself in the kinds of things we thank the Lord for, and the kinds of things we pray for, and the kinds of things we labor for. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this model. And even as we look at a, an inspired model like this uh, and, and see how we fall short in varying degrees, Lord, may we just be encouraged to know that even as we feel the weight of needing to grow in these things, that you are not standing aloof with a scowl on your face, disappointed with us, but you are our loving friend. You are our advocate, and you are eager to see us grow in these ways. You are most enthusiastic in our favor, on our side. And so I pray, Lord, that we would remember that, that we would remember that you have been kind in giving us this model, that we might see what we need to become. You have been kind, Lord, in giving us your spirit that we might have the power to be shaped in our thinking, in our priorities, that our minds might be renewed after this model. And Lord, we just pray that as we go out, we would not quickly forget these things, this model, but that we would learn to grow in this. This would increasingly become our priorities. And may this text be on our mind even as we return next week uh, to look at the third lesson. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.